You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of John. Here's Nate. As we turn to John chapter 5, we are sort of shifting into a different section now in the Gospel of John. Uh, We have seen, really, up to this point, Jesus presented uh, to the world. John has done a wonderful job at through the prologue and the first 18 verses and throughout the rest of chapter 1 and 2, 3, and 4, presenting Christ to us and presenting Jesus to the world, building a case for who he is, what he is, and his fame and his popularity really at this point is growing. There's been hesitation, you know, in a minor sense concerning the religious leaders, but really they're more concerned with the movement that is occurring and the fame that Jesus is acquiring. But here in chapter five, we now move into a section where we are going to see Jesus begin to be publicly opposed. Uh, Today here in chapter five, we're going to see that religious leaders begin to desire to actually kill him. Uh, chapter 6, we're going to see many of his disciples, not the 12 disciples, but many followers, leave him. And by the end of chapter 7, we're going to see many people referring to him as a demon-possessed man and be looking for a way to arrest him and ultimately see him put to death. And so we have the roots of uh, his opposition occurring here in this next section in the Gospel of John. Now, as we turn to John 5. I want you to, in your mind, think about a political leader surveying the land after a natural disaster, right? I mean, we've made a huge deal about this, in, in, at least in the United States, in our media coverage of how a large political figure, whether it's a president or a state governor, responds to a natural disaster, And usually, it's initially that there will be a survey of the devastation. And here's what I wanted to say. Uh, That's the right thing to do, of course. But Jesus is far better than any politician in that he did not merely come to survey our disaster. Take in the scene of our devastation. No, Jesus actually became flesh and dwelt among us. He lived our devastation and took all of our devastation and sin into his own body upon that cross. And today, I think what we're going to see is a little bit of a picture of that beautiful reality. Jesus is going to reach into the life of a man, offer him healing. And I think that this is a wonderful picture of the offer that Jesus has made to all of humanity, stepping into our disaster and offering us life. And he'll explain that at the close of our study today as we go through these first 30 verses of this chapter. It says in verse 1, after this, okay, so after Jesus had been up in Galilee healing uh, the son of the official from Capernaum, it says, after this there was a feast. We do not know which one. Of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. More than likely, this was Passover, but it does not say. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, 
which has five roofed colonnades. Now, up to this point, the text sounds very natural, right? Jesus goes to Jerusalem at feast time. He goes through the sheep gate. This isn't a gate that is designated for sheep, although in the distant history of Israel, it may have been a place that livestock would pass through. But humans would pass through it as well. It was just named the sheep gate historically. And he goes through and he goes to this pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which means house of twin outpourings. And he goes to this pool, which has five roofed colonnades. All right. So, so you know, the Jerusalem, this is the city that has the temple, a beautiful place. Potentially here, we're assuming we're going to see something wonderful, but nothing could be further from the truth. It says in verse 3 that in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. I think what we're seeing is a, is a, is a picture, something that illustrates, I mean, this scene, how gruesome it would have been. We're seeing a picture of the fallenness the brokenness of humanity. This this is what the curse has done to the human species. Now, now it gets worse, actually. I'm, I'm teaching from the English Standard Version, which jumps from the middle of verse 3 all the way to verse 5, because the oldest manuscripts don't include the next little line. But a large majority of the newer manuscripts do include this line. And let me read it to you from the New King James Version. After it says that in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lamed, and paralyzed, it says that they were waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that and and the situation sounds all the sadder. I mean, this isn't a hopeful thing to me. I'm not certain whether this actually happened or, or was a rumor or a legend. We know later in the text that, that Jesus will interact with a man who definitely believed that the stirring of the water, if you were the first person in, would lead to your healing. But just think about this scene. All of these sick and blind and lame and paralyzed laid out. No one to care for them, no one to watch over them and waiting for the stirring of the water. And when the water did stir, the person that was able to get in first would receive a healing. It just sounds broken. It just sounds fallen. It doesn't sound like it was intended to be. And so Jesus, here in this moment, it says in verse 5 that one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? I love this. He, I believe, receives a word of knowledge from the Holy Spirit indicating that this particular man had been at the pool, perhaps the longest, but for 38 long, hard years. Jesus goes up to this man, and I I just love that Jesus finds the deepest pain, the hardest situation, and he goes straight for it. And then he says to the man, he asks him what appears to be almost a ridiculous question. He says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Now, in one sense, I think that this is a question that Jesus is asking 
on a universal plane. Just as when he looked at the multitudes and said, I am the bread of life. I think he was looking far beyond those multitudes and was declaring for all time where the source of nourishment from God would come. It's through Christ. He says, I can give to you living water to the woman at the well. And I think he was looking beyond that woman and, and giving an offer of, of, of joy and, and, and the spirit just bubbling from a person's life for all time. He, that offer was made. And I think when he looks at this man and says, do you want to be healed? I think there's a sense in which he is looking beyond this man into the brokenness of this world and this humanity in general. And he's saying, listen, here I am. Do you want to be healed? You're looking to weaker things. Just as this man was looking to the stirring of the water, what do we look to to improve ourselves and to improve our culture and to try to solve the quandaries of the day? Well, we look to education or we look to wealth distribution. We look to all these different things to say, this, now this can bring us life. This can help our fallen situation. But the reality is that education is broken. The rich will get richer. Greed will continue to exist in all classes and at all levels. And Jesus steps into this broken world and he says, listen, here I am. Do you want to be healed? But I think in one sense, this is a wonderful personal question as well. You know, because I think at times we can become so attached to the sin or the problem that is us to the point that it becomes our identity. And so the question is, do you even really want this? Do you really want to be healed? Do you really long to see God work in your life? Do you want to see him give you that victory over alcohol? Do you want to see him uh, give you victory over the lust of your eyes? Do you really want that or do you feign that you want it when all the while you really like to continue in it a little bit longer? You know, when Moses was doing his thing and God was bringing the plagues down upon the nation of Egypt. You know, plague after plague came and Pharaoh would promise to let the people go. But there's one plague that's so interesting to me. It's the plague of the frogs. And it was especially defiling for the Egyptians to be with these frogs. They were a defiled creature to them. And, you know, Pharaoh runs to Moses. Hey, you can do whatever you want. Get out of here. Just take away these frogs. And I've always found it fascinating because Moses says to Pharaoh, when? When do you want the frogs to leave? And Pharaoh actually says, tomorrow. Not as soon as possible, not right this minute, not today even, but tomorrow. And I think there's a sense of that inside the heart of every person. There's a little bit of, of, of a thing inside us that says, you know, one more night with this sin. One more night with this addiction. One more little season with these frogs. It's just kind of in our makeup. And so Jesus looks at this man and says, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up and while I am going, another steps down before me. Now, now when the man says this, I, I have to believe personally that he's a little agitated with Jesus. He really isn't very heroic in this text, the man. Uh, later on, he'll actually report Jesus to the authorities that he knows are upset with Jesus. 
He doesn't even know who healed him initially. It doesn't seem to be very thankful or appreciative of Christ. And so I, I imagine this man a little cranky with Jesus. And Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. This is an instance where Jesus is going to heal a man who isn't even asking to be healed. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. And it says at the end of verse 9 that now that day was the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath initially was beautiful, right? I mean, this was a day where, you know, on the seventh day of creation, it says that God rested from his works on that seventh day. And so the people of Israel would observe, you know, one day a week, a Sabbath rest, a day to worship God, a day to relax, a day to, you know, eat food and watch college football and just, you know, be blessed, Right? But the religious folks of the day just couldn't have it like that. They turned the Sabbath into something that was a rather cumbersome for the people of Israel. Ridiculous rules like, well, you can't carry an orange in your pocket because that's too heavy. You're bearing a burden on the Sabbath, so you've got to cut the orange in half. And who wants to walk around with a half an orange in their pocket, getting their outfit all juicy and messed up? And, you know, things like you could spit on the rocks because that won't do anything. But if you spit on the dirt and the spittle rolls on the ground and there's a little line behind it, it's as if you're plowing a field and you're working on the Sabbath. I mean, just ridiculous rules that would cause the people of Israel to say, God is a punk. I can't believe that he gave us this messed up day every single week. And so, you know. Because Jesus healed on the Sabbath, these religious leaders are going to get upset with him. So, verse 10, the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now, that wasn't true. Uh, It was more than legal for this man to carry his bed on the Sabbath day. The only man who wouldn't be allowed to carry his bed on the Sabbath day, according to the Bible, would be a man whose job was to carry beds. Uh, But this wasn't the man's career path. He was just taking his bed from one place to another. And he answered them and he said, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? I find that so fascinating. They didn't ask, What? You used to be paralyzed? Who healed you? How did this happen? It's, It's a miracle. They didn't ask that. Instead, their question out of their mouth was, Who told you to take up your bed? And walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And so he goes to this man, tells him, Hey, don't sin anymore, that nothing worse may happen to you, which might be indicative of of, of and give us a little clue that this man had become crippled somehow through sin. Now, of course, we understand that all injury and sickness and trial and tear, all of that is a result of the fall. None of that was present in pre-fall conditions, uh, nor will it be present in post-fall conditions when we see the Lord face to face and enter into glory. So we know that it's all connected to sin ultimately, but Individually, there are times where our personal sin can lead to some kind of physical catastrophe. 
right? You get drunk, you get behind the wheel of a car, you hurt yourself or others. That is a direct result of your sin. You acquire a, a, a sexually transmitted disease uh, through, you know, living a very loose life morally. That is a result of your sin. And so perhaps this man had done something and Jesus knew that about this man. And he says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because verse 16, he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. Now this is fascinating to me because in the other Gospels, when they get in arguments about the Sabbath, Jesus, he, he actually uses a different line of argument in the other Gospels. You know, things like going back to the Old Testament scriptures, giving a correct interpretation, uh, showing them that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. And, uh, and, and, and then even proclaiming that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And so he's the rule maker. But here, his line of reasoning is beautiful. He says it like this. He says, listen, you guys know that God, my father, not, not our father, but my father, Jesus says, which would infuriate them. He says, you know that my father, he's been working until now. And they would all confess that, right? I mean, they knew that God had ceased from his creative work after the sixth day, on that seventh day. But they none of them would have said, that every single Sabbath, God stops working. They all knew that he was sustaining life, that he was sustaining, you know, the sun, the moon, the stars, the universe, that he was holding it by the word of his power, that he was, you know, giving them breath and life. They all knew that. They would all confess that. And so they knew that God never stopped working even on the Sabbath. He ceased from creation, but he did not stop working. And Jesus uses this simple argument. He says, listen, I am of my father. He works on the Sabbath, so I work on the Sabbath. And this was why, verse 18, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so they were upset with Jesus because he was healing on the Sabbath, but they were more upset with him and wanted to kill him because he was claiming equality with God. I mean, the, in, the incarnation was just something they could not handle. It was so scandalous to them that God would step into our situation, that he would, as Paul says in Philippians 2, would, though he was in the form of God, not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but empty himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and be found in human form, and humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This was so scandalous to these Jewish leaders, they would never imagine the Messiah in a million years. Uh, doing this kind of thing. And so they're upset with Jesus for his claim to be equal with God. But their belief about what Jesus is saying, about being equal with God, needed serious modification. 
And so bear with me for a moment as we look at what Jesus has to say as he explains to them his equality with God. He says in verse 19, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. You know, in other words, you guys need to know this. There's nothing I can do by myself. The Father initiates, the Father sends, the Father commands, the Father commissions, the Father grants. And Jesus says, the Son, he's the one who responds and obeys and performs his Father's will. I receive authority from my Father. I can do nothing of my own accord. He says, as he goes on, but only what he sees the Father doing. In in other words, what Jesus is saying is saying, listen, I'm only reflecting what the Father himself, what God himself is all about. In other words, you learn of the heart of God by simply watching his son act out his heart. And God wanted to touch this man and he wants to touch the world. And so uh, Jesus says, whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And then he goes on and says, for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. In other words, Jesus says, this isn't a rebel relationship. It's not that there's the father and now I'm claiming equality with the father and I'm going to do whatever I darn well please. No, that's not it at all. He says, no, the father's happy with me. He loves me and he shows me all the things that he himself is doing. So whatever equal with God means. It doesn't mean that Jesus saw himself as independent from the Father. He always pleased the Father, and he only did whatever he saw the Father do. You would never, in an, to put this in another sense, you would never see this saying reversed. You would never see the Father say, I only do what the Son gives me to do. There are distinct roles within the triune God. They're eternally co-equal. And, of course, are one, right? One God. However, there are distinct roles between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And so Jesus goes on. He says, in greater works, verse 20, then these will he show him so that you may marvel. You're, you're impressed with me healing this man who's been injured for 38 years. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to see something better than this. He says, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, So also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And so Jesus says, listen, you're going to see greater things than this, namely, people being raised from the dead. Now, initially, of course, this was pictured in you know, people Jesus raised from the dead in his earthly ministry. Lazarus, the daughter of Jairus, the son of the widow. You know, and then a little bit further along, when Jesus was crucified, the tombs are opened up and people walk out of them. You're seeing resurrection in a sense take place. And then, of course, Jesus, he rose from the grave, the greatest sign and wonder. And He really was the firstborn, first fruits from the dead, the first fruits of resurrection. In the sense that everyone else who had been raised, even in the Old Testament days, they all died again. But Jesus was raised to never die again. 
And he foreshadowed a future resurrection of judgment. It's a resurrection to life or a resurrection to death. And so Jesus is declaring, listen, I'm going to do something greater than this. It's this thing called the resurrection, one to life and one to death. And he'll talk about that in a moment. But then he says, the father has set it up this way so that you would honor the son. Truly, truly, verse 24, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So simple belief in Christ. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Where is this life found, this resurrection life? It's found in Christ. And verse 27, he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Again, a future resurrection, one to life and one to judgment. And Jesus says in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of of him, the Father who sent me. Now, I read those verses rather quickly because they are, in one sense, repetitious. They are easy, I think, at least for me, to get bogged down in. And so here's the, the big truth that I want you to see. Jesus says to them, listen, there's eternal life for those who believe. There is a coming resurrection, one to life and one to judgment, but that day is coming and life is found inside of me. And he says, those who do good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, if we had just parachuted right into this text, we might think that what he's saying is, hey, live a good life, you'll have a resurrection to life. Live an evil life, a resurrection to judgment. But we know from the rest of the Gospel of John and the rest of the New Testament that, and, and even the rest of Jesus' dialogue here, that life is found through believing in Jesus, faith in Christ. But that faith produces something in a person's life where they live a different styled life and they live a good life. This is why I constantly preach the gospel to Christians. Because the more that message impacts our hearts, the better lives we will live. I mean, the, the more that message is firm inside of us, the stronger of a witness uh, and lives will live. And I think in one sense, what Jesus would say to us, after we come to him and after we take his beautiful offer of life, after he looks at us and says, do you want to be made well? When we say yes, he would look at us then and say, okay, now go and sin no more. Grow and mature. And let your light so shine in this world. So remember, Jesus looked into our disaster, stepped into it, engaged in it, and made a way for mankind to escape it and be saved. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.